This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to our weekly trip around a big country. I'm Clint Jasper, thanks for joining me. This week, the specialist detection dogs who are sniffing out weeds. We'll head to a farmer's market to meet a passionate beekeeper who's selling his raw honey and beeswax and sharing the story of his permaculture practice. And we'll meet a couple who've found their calling as distillers. They've started up their own business making whiskey and gin in northern Tasmania after falling in love with the craft during an introduction course. I think on day one, when we were making the whiskey wash, which is actually the hardest part because it's quite manual labour, Matt and I looked across, we were digging the mash and mixing it up, and we were both sweating profusely, but we looked across the mash tun and he had the biggest smile on his face. And I was smiling as well, and we just said, this is it, this is what we're going to (laughs) do. When you know, you know. We'll meet that couple who've stumbled into a new career and haven't looked back coming up. Let's start with an innovative project that's using short films to share stories. Reporter Rick Eaves met the man behind the Moving Stories project, making five-minute documentaries featuring people with dementia, and he discovered how it was inspired by personal experience. When Chris Mead's mum, Judy, passed away, it sparked an idea. Mum was in, she lived in residential age care for several years and some carers came to her funeral and we chose this beautiful place because it was my mum's favourite. And what happens when you have a funeral is you tell lots of stories. And so carers came up to me and they said, you know, we just didn't know some of those stories that you were telling about your mum. And I thought, well, I didn't necessarily expect you to, but would it have made a difference to her care if you did know these stories? Now, Chris's Art Health Agency has teamed up with the Dementia Specific Day Centre and Arts Tasmania to make short documentaries revealing the life and nuances of people transitioning into residential aged care we noticed within residential aged care, staff wouldn't necessarily know all those little nuances about your mother, what would trigger her to be agitated. Don't ask her to go to bingo every week because she doesn't want to hang out with the older people, you know, her friends are 20 years younger. Or things like blasphemy, you know, she just couldn't tolerate it. And you tell these stories at the funeral, but why didn't we tell them in the first place when she moved into care? Hello, I'm Rick Eaves. I'm chatting with Chris at the Emu Valley Rhododendron Garden in northern Tasmania. This pretty spot was a favourite of Chris's mum. It's where they held her funeral and where a memorial plaque remembers her life. Chris is explaining the idea of the Moving Story documentary project that he's been working on to help other dementia patients, their families and carers. It was originally thought of as as a transitional project. Moving story is when we move, our story moves with us. Manu's in uh, Devonport. It's part of the Mearcroft Care Inc. And although it it operates autonomously and seven days a week and it's an extraordinary community of staff and clients. And so clients will go there anything from two to, to four days a week. Right now, actually, they're on the foreshore of Devonport with musician Brad Von Rock and, and they're all jamming as part of our program. Hi, I'm Tammy Bromfield and I'm the team leader of the Manu Day Centre here in Devonport. Mono is a day centre providing support to those living in our community with dementia. It's that step between 
living in the community and going into residential aged care. Reflections Cafe is a cafe we run once a fortnight to bring in our clients, carers, anybody else in the community living with dementia, singing, dancing, playing some musical instruments. We're excited about the films because it allows us to give our clients a voice. It's important for them to be able to say who they are and the life they've lived. Someone like Ted, we've learnt how important music is to Ted and he continues to play every fortnight at the cafe. Ted's a rock steady drummer, he never misses a beat. I think they're a wonderful resource to sit down with that client and watch together. The films have been quite emotional. I know for families they have, but in turn myself and my staff, we've all shed a tear. We've noticed that the family members are very interested in, in sharing their own experiences of what it's like and how isolating it can be and, you know, where they're at along the way as well. So families also, you know, they're, they're very interested in the idea that we're actually capturing their loved one in this moment of time. But they also are wanting to be so helpful by telling stories to be able to gift to care management teams and say, you know, this is my husband, please look after him. What are some of the common themes that come through when people are telling their stories? Quite often I will just set everything up and just actually say, where would you like to start? In a very co-producing kind of way, often the family member will initiate the conversation. Mum, tell everyone where you were born. Is it the case too with dementia that sometimes certain times in a person's life are easier to recall? Yeah. We're just creating a film at the moment with a lady who discovered painting and creating art. And her work is incredible. And she's been able to, to paint her home, her family home that she grew up in. And so she's holding this painting, telling us this is the house and this is the neighbour we didn't like around the corner and this is where we swam. And, you know, sometimes there are visual cues. We're also very interested in whether music evokes memory too. That's what I had in mind, I think, when I asked about common themes because I have heard a few times that music is something that is particularly sticky in memory that people just will always remember the words of their favourite song. Sometimes, other times it's just that music is just joy. We've had family members just been incredibly grateful that we've captured their mother's voice, her true self. That's enormous in itself. Wouldn't it be amazing if on a Monday morning, you know, there was a file on the desk of, of all of the staff to say, here's George, here's the new person that will be moving in soon. There has been incredibly brave moments of people able to talk about moving into aged care. and That can be also the person who will be le left back at home while their loved one goes into care. And that's a difficult subject to talk about. Literally at Manu, there's a blue door and on the other side, is the residential aged care. So when they stop coming to the day centre, it means that they've gone through the blue door and they've gone into this huge residential aged care community who don't necessarily know them. The project responds to the Aged Care Commission report about improving social and emotional well-being, but also the opportunity for clients and families and care staff to be part of that solution. The project's really asking if a triangle of relationships, if that's stronger, does that make a difference to the care? Mum always felt invisible as a, as a widow, pensioner, with her dementia. She's trying to articulate what it felt like. And she would just say, you know, take me down the backyard and shoot me with a pop gun. And there were times of humour um, and times of sadness. This is where I come. It's like a spiritual home for mum. It was her favourite place.
the quote that's on her plaque directs the work and uh, it says rejoice in the infinite beauty of this moment of now. She'd be very proud, you know. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. I need some honey. Are they both the same uh, marks? Sorry, two different ones. Okay. Would you like to try them? At a country market in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland, Max Lindegger is selling honey from the bees he keeps on his property at Crystal Waters, an eco village just down the valley from here. You're looking well. Thank you. Max has had a few professions over his lifetime, but bees have been a passion for a few decades now. My background is actually in engineering design, but I retired from that a long time ago and then did permaculture design and permaculture consultancy all around the world, in more than 60 countries actually. But I've been a beekeeper for 46 years and having sort of retired many years ago now, I focused more on bees and trying to breed the best possible queen, which we all try to do and enjoy it. And working with bees, being partially deaf as I am, bees don't need to be talked to. I can still hear them. You understand their language? I do, yeah. You go by smell and their behaviour, and it's forever fascinating. Oh, they are, aren't they? Endlessly interesting yeah yeah i mean i often say i got cattle too and i often say i prefer to deal with cattle and bees than with people <laughs> hello i'm jennifer nichols i'm having a look over max's stall where the products he's selling are a little different to most of the honey you'll find on supermarket shelves we don't blend the honey we don't mix it we don't use any poisons never have used any poisons and we only harvest the surplus, or we don't rob the bees. We try to work with the bees. And like now with the rain we had, of course the bees have been struggling a bit. So then you have to make sure as the bees have always enough honey for themselves. What floral sources are they mainly accessing at Crystal Waters? Well, we're looking across eucalyptus forest. So probably 80% would be eucalypts, in our case the honey. But even plants which we say are sweet, like cobbler's pigs, the bees will work. Cobbler's pigs are actually an excellent honey, and the bees get pollen and nectar out of it. And so when you're producing raw honey, what's the difference between raw honey and other types of more processed honey? OK, if you would buy honey from one of the big processors, they would have to heat it up as it flows through their pipe system and they will also remove some of the pollen. They want to make sure that the honey does not crystallise because people expect honey to be liquid. In our case, we don't heat the honey at any stage. So that means that eventually the honey will crystallise. It's a natural process and also it means we have to educate our customers and they know they buy from us regularly or sometimes the honey will crystallise. That's a natural process. It's just something you will get if you don't heat the honey. Definitely heating will change the flavour and honey is lot in many cultures see it as medicine and we see it as such as well and once you heat it it will destroy the enzymes and it will just come a sweetener rather than being medicine and a quality food. So what are the two types of honey you've got here? It's Max Lindiger? From the same bees, the same place, 
different time of the year, so different flowers. There will be a slight taste difference to the honey. So you've got Jabotacaba, Tipuana, Jacaranda, Blue Gum and Grey Gum in that one and Jacaranda, Clover, Jabotacaba, Brazilian Cherry and Blue Gum in the other. Nice. And a lot of it, of course, would also be eucalypts or brush box. Depends what's flowering. And then some extra trees from the garden, the orchard, will contribute pollen and nectar and, and will add to the flavour. Now, you've got waxes there as well. How do you go about making your waxes and accessing enough wax from the bees to do that? When you harvest the honey, you actually remove the cappings because the bees, once the moisture content in the honey, as it comes from nectar to honey, once it's reduced to below about 20%, they put a wax cap on it. And we extract it once it has a wax cap on it. And the caps then we give to a friend, he washes them and he makes meat out of it, honey meat out of it. It's an alcohol- alcoholic drink. And we get the, the washed cappings back, we melt them down, we clean them, and then we make the pure beeswax taillights out of it and the rolled candles. And people also buy the blocks of wax for didgeridoo mouthpieces or to make candles or the wraps to wrap cheese or perishable goods as well. So our wax has never had any chemicals in it and so people use it for food users and any many, many purposes that Beekeeper Max Lindiger, he was speaking to reporter Jen Nichols at a market near his home in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN. Still to come, the canine helpers who are lending their nose to sniff out weeds and how accidentally signing up to a distilling course changed the career paths of a Tasmanian couple. So Matt and I fell in love with distilling here in Tasmania in 2016. I'd actually booked a distilling course for his birthday as a surprise and I was going to go to the spa for the week and it came through the week before and it was for two people. So I had to bin the spa and join him on their distilling course and day one we knew that this was what we were going to do. When Sarah Packwood Hollings and her partner Matt attended a distilling course seven years ago, it set them on new career paths. But they didn't ditch their old jobs straight away. It did take us a while to find uh, yeah, our spot, but it then took us another three years to basically travel the world and find where we were going to build our distillery. But it brought us right back to Tasmania where we fell in love with it. What did you do prior to distilling? So Matt was a high voltage electrician and I've always been in sales and marketing. <laughs> Bit of a change. <laughs> And what was it about distilling that really captured both of your passions? I think on day one, when we were making the whiskey wash, which is actually the hardest part because it's quite manual labor, um, Matt and I looked across, we were digging the mash and mixing it up and we were both sweating profusely, but we looked across the mash tun and he had the biggest smile on his face and I was smiling as well. And we just said, this is it. This is what we're going to (laughs) do. Hello, I'm Jessica Schremer. Since that light bulb moment several years ago, the couple have established their own distillery here at Table Cape on Tasmania's northwest coast, where they are distilling handcrafted whiskies and gins using locally grown botanicals and barley. 
So at the moment we're using as much Tasmanian barley as we can get to make our, our whiskey wash. There is a supply and demand pressure on Tasmanian barley, but we are looking uh, in the future to actually grow our own barley here on the property. And if we can't grow it here because of the slopes on our land, then we're looking to work with our neighbors who are contract growers to grow our barley for us. We've planted our first juniper bushes, for our gin. That's a very long-term project though. Juniper bushes take a long time to come to maturity. So uh, in the meantime, we are, I've got a greenhouse that Matt bought me a few months ago that we're growing some of our botanicals in there, some lemon myrtle. We've got a lemon tree that we use for all our citrus. So the long-term plan is for us to grow as many of our botanicals here on site that we can. And distilleries have been popping up quite a lot across Australia. What does that mean for the industry? So for us as an industry, it's a very supportive industry in Tasmania. I've got to say, since we've made the decision to come back to Tassie and set up our uh, distillery here, uh, the industry has really welcomed us and been really supportive. So I think that's amazing. I don't think that happens in every uh, every industry across um, Australia. What does consumer demand currently for handcrafted products look like what are you seeing so we're seeing that people love it more and more people now and it's really surprised us that the younger generation are really interested and really bought into understanding the provenance of the ingredients and the fact that they can then go through the distillery and see map making it they come out and they're just blown away and they love it so for us I think It's certainly been been a positive. The feedback on the actual product itself and on the process when they see it, it's all about, wow, we can see it being made and now we can taste it. So I think, yeah, I think small handcrafted uh, is certainly going to further grow in the next sort of five to ten years, absolutely. How did you come up with all your recipes and your specific distills <laughs> well that's <laughs> if you go pop into the distillery afterwards you'll see all the um all the tests some go wrong matt leaves them there so he can show people this is what happens sometimes if it goes wrong um for our gin recipes uh we've got a five liter pot still Uh, because if it goes wrong on five liters, it's a lot cheaper than it going wrong on 500 liters. So yeah, it's just trial and error. It's a real science and Matt loves it. So last week we were on recipe 25. I think yesterday he dropped me recipe 38 off. Every day he's testing and working with botanicals to try and find just the right balance. So it's exciting. And that, that yeah, that's part of the fun of it. When it goes wrong, it's even fun because you're like, ooh, <laughs> what color is that? Are there any other recipes that you already have in mind? Yes, so we're going to um, make a barley vodka from our waste, what would usually be waste from our whiskey uh, runs. We're also looking to work in collaboration with a another local business to do an apple brandy in the future. And Matt is also very excited about doing a rum. The... Alchemia beer also has a ring to it and Matt loves beer so I can imagine that there will also be an Alchemia beer at some stage in the future. When Steve Dallywater goes to work he takes along some four-legged companions. Yeah, it's uh, worse things to be doing than being out in the field with dogs. Um, we cover conservation detection dogs on a really broad range of 
invasive and endangered plant and animal species. So we work on hawkweed up in the Kosciuszko National Park. We work on alligator weed around various regional areas. We've got dogs that find koalas, rabbits, foxes, rats, all of those kinds of species. But the parthenium weed's uh, one that we've been working on for about the last 12 months and we've had a lot of success with. For this job, Steve is working with three conservation detection dogs with various levels of experience sniffing out weeds. So we have Connor, who is a six-year-old male Springer Spaniel, and he has spent about the last five years working on the hawkweed eradication program in the Kosciuszko National Park. Then we've got Dash, who's female, and she is just gone two years of age, and she's a really brilliant dog. She works on koalas, on rodents, and on parthenium weed and now hawkweed as well. And then we've got little Darcy who's an up-and-comer. He's only about five months of age and he's basically on the road here today just to kind of get some experience being out and about and with the serious working dogs. Hello, I'm Amelia Bernasconi. I'm here with dog handler Steve Dallywater meeting his detection dogs, Connor, Dash and little Darcy. They're working in the Upper Hunter region of New South Wales where after a long dry period which saw farmers rely on fodder donations from further afield, there's been some decent rain, leading to plenty of weeds, including some that haven't been seen in our region before. Of particular concern to the local weeds authority is parthenium, which can make people and livestock unwell, as well as taking over pastures. And that's why they've called in some extra paws to get on top of the problem. Steve Dallywater says the Springer Spaniel breed of dog are perfectly suited to the job of sniffing out weeds. They're gun dogs by breeding and we find that that works really well. They adapt very well to all of the different kinds of environments that we work in. They're not afraid to get themselves muddy, dirty, wet. They can climb over things very well. And most importantly, they have a nose that they just want to use constantly. So their default position is to have that nose on the ground hunting. And so when we can give them direction and get them uh, working onto a target that's beneficial to us, it really works well. And the other great thing about them is that they naturally want to work closely to people and alongside people as well. So unlike some other breeds that would run out miles away and kind of bark when they find something, Springer Spaniels are always working close. And so we can watch their behaviour, see any changes in their behaviour as they pick up on a scent. And in particular, when they find that target, in this case, the parthenium weed, they'll put their nose right on it, they'll sit or they'll lie down and they'll look at you expectantly waiting for you to throw that tennis ball, which is their prize. How on earth, though, do you teach them to to find particular weeds? I mean, we were trying to smell it before, Doug and I, and there's not much of an odour to the parthenium weed. Yeah, and that's one of the great things about dogs. Um, their nose is just a whole different level. Um, it's certainly kind of comparable to our abilities with our eyesight. And so um, when you work enough with these plants, sometimes you can start to distinguish what that odour is a little bit if you've got it in a sealed container and you bury your nose onto it. Um, but the dogs just don't miss it, basically. And so some of the odours that we're on um, can be a little bit trickier to pick up on. They need to be a bit more forensic to isolate it. The parthenium weed in particular just seems to be obvious to them. And that's great because when we look at it, it's not always that obvious. Um, one of the plants that we found just today... The dog was right on it straight away, looking at us like we were silly. And we were looking at the plants going, which one is it that he's talking about? And sure enough, there it was. Um, but yeah, they're just very, very, very good at it. Do they have to be mature plants, weeds, for the dogs to find them? Or what stages can they find them at? We find um, that they 
don't really need to be um, at any particular stage. The dogs um, will find the tiniest little sample and often our training um, samples are just individual small little leaves. Um, so in some senses, depending on what it is that we're training on, sometimes that's all we can get to start the training process. And so um, it takes a little bit of field experience for them to start to realise that, oh, we're not just looking for the tiny tip of a leaf here, we're actually looking for whatever stage and, and even these big ones that to them are quite obvious, um, that we're interested in those as well. Um, but certainly when it comes to things like the hawkweed, we're finding um, that they'll be indicating on a spot where we can't see any plant yet and then it'll appear a couple of weeks later. So um, they are extremely good at finding it at all stages. And for some of these plants that we're finding, it's quite obvious for people to spot it when it's in flower, um, but the dogs will find it at any stage, which is really beneficial. So the work ethic of these dogs is incredible. They're having a little nap um, now, having a breather. But the work ethic is incredible. I mean, explain that to me and the, the tracking that you do. You can monitor just how, how big the days are that they do. Yes, that's right. We put GPS collars on our dogs when we're out in the field. Uh, it does give you that backup little bit of safety if they get out of sight that you know exactly where they are. But the most important thing that we're using it for is to get the data on exactly what areas the dogs have covered and also the kilometres that they're doing as well. So um, for a young enthusiastic dog like Dash, it's not uncommon for her to cover 20 kilometres in a working day. Um, she'll then get home and be right, quite ready to keep working again. Um, some of the older, more mature dogs are a bit more sensible. You can see here that Connor is curled up and he's <laughs> taking the opportunity for a proper power nap. Um, but if I say his name and flush a ball, he'll be ready to go again. That was dog handler Steve Dallywater. He spoke to reporter Amelia Bersconi in the New South Wales Upper Hunter region where he was working with conservation detection dogs to hunt down weeds for eradication. And that's it for this week's show. Don't forget you can find out more information on all of the stories you've heard today on the RN homepage. You'll find a big country under the programs tab. I'm Claire Jasper. I'll be back next week with more great stories from regional Australia. Talk to you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.